We'll open with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Hebrews. We'll be in chapter 6 today, verse 4 through 12. A few comments before we, we read, though. If uh, you don't have a Bible with you, the Pew Bible in front of you will work just fine. Page 1003 is where you'll find this morning's text. Well, last week, Matt Jackson, our student and family minister, preached, and I thank God for him, a fellow worker in the truth, and for you. Uh, it was a faithful sermon and sets this sermon up well, as this is a part two in a section of this book. Last week's text warned us concerning slowness to hear. A lack of growth as Christians against stunted growth. Not against the kind of everyday struggles that we have as Christians with temptation and with, with sin, serious as that is. The Bible in this letter was written to struggling, sinful Christians. No, the warning is for what we might call Toys R Us Christians uh, that don't want to grow up. Um, wouldn't put it that way, but Christianity is playing. They're playing Christianity. Or Christianity is attractive when it feels like playing, when it's, when it's fun. But in the course of time... There hasn't been growth and there is not an interest in growing. Well, maybe you asked last week quietly, do I really have to grow up? Well, this week's text provides an answer to that question, a motive for doing so, if we'll trust God by his word. Let's read together Hebrews chapter 6, starting in verse 4. Listen as I read. For it is impossible... In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For land that is drunk, the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it's cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises." Christmas time. It's a time when we often 
will be in the same room with family we don't see, but perhaps once a year or maybe every few years. Just last week, my family and I made a trip to St. Louis to see my mom and dad. We see them about once a year, and then we drove north to Chicago. You can add up the miles and hours if you want and feel bad for me. It's just fine. But I got to see great family, and I was with great kids in the car. They did great. A lot of miles. Drove from there up to Chicago, uh, where there's an annual gathering of my aunts and uncles on my mom's side, and some cousins who can make it, and then their kids now, and my kids' cousins, and and we've missed that gathering for a number of years, but we're determined to make it this year, and we made it, and it was great seeing everybody. And I can't believe how some of my cousins' kids have grown. My cousins and I, we don't really get older at this point. At least, we can't tell. But a, a, a similar gathering took place among the same family, but at a different time, right at Thanksgiving. Um, 20 years ago, as I was growing up, we'd make our way to Constantine, Michigan, and in the doorway, the first thing you walk, you walk in the front door, and the first thing Grandma and Grandpa do is usher you to the doorway into the kitchen, where along the wall, along the in, inside of the door, uh, there were rulers attached and little lines with everyone's height going back years and years. Uh, my, my parents' generation, and then, and then us grandkids, and. Um, they were marking growth because they expected to see growth because growth is normal for kids. There wasn't any hesitation in ushering us over to the door with the thought that maybe we wouldn't have grown at all. Maybe we would get to a certain height and that'd be fine, but we will keep growing. And eventually it's natural to stop growing in, in height and, and yet the years click on and we can see the measurement of growth over time. Now the Christian life isn't isn't a straight line up like that. Um, it may be more like the stock market, some dips and some jumps, and, and that's good, but with a, a gradual movement up over time. Not, not like this, and then like this, and not like this, more like this, but you can plot it, you can see it, you can feel it. And even your sense that you're less godly than you were when you became a Christian is just an illusion, actually. Because you weren't godly enough to know how sinful you were at the time. And today, by God's grace, we're more bothered by more, more things. And we know how incomplete we are and how much God has to do. And we pray he is at work. If he permits, we will continue to grow and, and see him one day. And he'll complete what he began as his scriptures, as his scriptures promise. Well, spiritual growth like physical growth, is a thing. And like physical growth is the way it goes for us physically. So spiritual growth is the way it goes for those who have spiritual life. And last week in the text that Matt preached, it was established that it is not okay to stay a baby Christian. You're a baby Christian when you're a new Christian, but you don't stay a new Christian. Christian, And so hopefully that unseated a few of us in the room. That it's not okay just to keep hitting repeat on the same fuzzy, mushy verses we have rolling around in our head without ever reading the Bible for our own. It's, it's not okay to show up on Sunday morning and, and be checking email and thinking about this and that. I know your mind can go there. But, but not to, to concentrate, not to come with an intent to listen, not to do the work 
the hard work of hearing the word of God and receiving the word of God and then putting the word of God to work in your own life and in the life of our church. That, that, that concerted effort is required. It, it's not automatic like growing physically is. Even growing physically takes eating. Stop eating and stop growing. But we as Christians can be in the presence of the word and not really be feeding. No, we need to be about the things that yield growth and about investing in them in overt and, and in intentional ways. Well, I'm aware with a passage like this that it would be tempting to spend the sermon talking about the passage. And there are a lot of things to talk about here. This is probably the most difficult passage in Hebrews, one of the more difficult passages in the New Testament. I'm not convinced after my study this week that it's as difficult as we make it out to be, but it does require careful handling, lest it be misunderstood, or lest we work so hard at understanding it, talking about it, that we don't receive it as God's word to us, about people, perhaps us, people we care about. That God's word doesn't do its work on us. And so explanation is needed because understanding is a prerequisite for receiving the word as the word of God. We'll try to do both of those this morning. Three parts. First, we have something impossible and something simple. Then something better. We begin with something impossible. Verse 4. For it is impossible... In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Now, in reading this, maybe your first response is, uh, this passage is impossible. Uh, What could it possibly mean? It reminds me a little bit of those animals that wash up on one of the coasts every now and then. They appear in my feed. Um, Is it a dog? It has no hair. Uh, Is it a whale? It came from the water. That doesn't make sense. Uh, It's got four legs. Is it a werewolf? Is it something else? Uh, It's a little scary. Did God really make that? And then uh, moving on. Someone will figure it out somewhere. And I just caught it when it was going viral before the, the scientists got to it. In any case, this passage feels a little bit that way, doesn't it? Uh, Did he just say that? It's impossible for those who have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance. Impossible for someone to repent. Does the offer not held out to everybody until the end? Um, It's impossible in the case of who? Okay, let's... Those who have been enlightened and tasted the heavenly gift and shared the Holy Spirit that saves us and tasted the goodness of the word of God by which he saves us and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away. Well, that sure sounds like a way to describe a Christian in in multiple, multiple images. So so then can a true Christian, somebody who's got all that, 
then, fall, then actually fall away and then actually not be restored? Or is he talking about maybe some type of falling away and not being restored to repentance in this life, but they're saved in the end? Well, it's clear that he's writing to Christians. We read all of these. There's five warning passages in the book of Hebrews. We read them together. They're not like little warnings to different types of people, um, different audiences. They're, they're warnings to the audience. Although there's some texture there, which we'll get to. Um, he identifies with the readers, the language of we and, and us. He speaks these words to them. And then when you put them together, it's clear that he's not talking about some type of unfortunate lapse and a state you're in uh, of neutrality toward God or, or of wandering until you're finally saved in the end. No, he's talking about eternal damnation. So how do we, how do we understand what this passage is saying to us? Because we want to hear God's word. And at Heritage, we're committed to that. We're committed to opening the next passage in the Bible and hearing from God and allowing the word of God to shape our view of God and of ourselves and of the future and of whether or not we should feel safe with God. And text by text, week after week, year after year, like building a, like building a city, our vision of God and his people and the kingdom and what it means to be in it is constructed by the word itself and not from your preacher who then grabs passages that that make sense with what seems right to all of us so we ought to be open always open to the bible saying something that we didn't believe before open to the bible saying something we didn't think that it actually said so we always start there and i have to start there each week in the study you think of when you're i actually have a memory of driving from chicago to st to excuse me, St. Louis to Chicago, which I've done many times before. It's much flatter on that drive than it is here. Lots of barns, plenty of corn. That's where it comes from. And as you're driving, you know, it's flat. You're not dealing with the mountains getting in the way of your, your, your radio signals when we used to use the radio. But you are dealing with maybe the interference from a local signal. So you're listening to your songs and you're driving along and then rah, someone's talking over or there's some other song and then rah, it's gone. And then you're back. Well, what was that? Well, that was a signal overriding the signal that you were listening to. Well, sometimes the signals in our head can override the signals that are being given from the page. Well, we've got a local signal right here, and it gets priority. It has right of way. And so we do the work at Heritage of, of trying to hear God speak, hear his voice, and to read the Bible on its own terms. And so you hire me to spend time in the study in the week, and I'm really blessed to be able to do that. And we're going to benefit from the fruit of that time together. But that's to say, we begin there. God is right, and we submit to him. And sometimes our conclusions are provisional. We conclude one thing on a text, and we may change our mind later, but we did our best to make sure we weren't merely defaulting to default positions because uh, they were comfortable or they seemed right without doing the work to establish ourselves. And our convictions. So that's the first thing that I want to say to say here. What kind of warning is this? What are we looking at exactly? Is this a warning to real Christians of the real possibility of losing salvation? I can see why we would speak in terms of losing salvation. 
we're given assurances that we belong to Jesus in the New Testament. And is it possible for us to not have those anymore and for it not to be true that we're, we're safe with God? And yet that's not even exactly the way the, the Bible talks. It speaks in stronger, stronger terms to comfort us than that. It speaks about Jesus not losing those he saves. I give them eternal life, Jesus says, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. The Apostle Paul says, I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Or John, when he writes to his readers in 1 John chapter 5, that he writes in order that you who believe in the name of the Son of God may know, know that you have eternal life. It's his purpose in writing. The Lord Jesus in John 6, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will not cast out. You will not be lost. The Apostle Paul, he's sure that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. That's a lot of material by many different biblical authors written to assure and to comfort uh, Christian readers concerning God's commitment to them. And the Father's commitment of people to Jesus so that Jesus would not lose the sheep that are his. So we're right not to move so quickly forward with a conclusion that might seem obvious on the face. So I don't think at this point, as we're working through, that this is a warning to real Christians concerning the possibility that those who are truly saved and belong to Jesus would be, would be lost from Jesus. Is it then a hypothetical warning? A warning given in order that it wouldn't happen if it could. This will have more merit. So think of a warning label. If I tell my kid... Uh, don't eat this. I don't know why we make those little stick them in the dishwasher things, the pods. Yes, I don't buy them. I don't use them. They get used for me. Kids are loading the dishwasher. I'm not saying another adult in my house isn't always doing it. It's shared. It's just rarely me. But I know how to use them. They They look good, don't they? I want to eat them. Uh, So I don't know why they look like that. I don't know why they're down there under the kitchen sink. But no doubt there's a a warning label on there. Don't eat it. Now, if I tell you not to eat something, it could kill you. You trust me. We're real friends, a real family, and there isn't a problem. I trust you won't eat it. In other words, the warning becomes the means by which... The hearer stays alive. And so it's actually true that the warning passages here are the means by which God keeps his people. 
Nevertheless, when he speaks about those who, it's hard for me to stay there and say this is merely hypothetical, merely a means, although it is at least that. So it seems like something else is going on here, and we're continuing to do the work of examining in order to understand so that it might land on us. And context will help us. It's helpful to remember that this is a sermon. At the end of the book, he says, thank you for bearing with my word of exhortation. It is not a theological treatise, although it is theologically sound. By that I mean he doesn't take every opportunity to clarify against how he might be misunderstood or to explore a certain problem. And he might allow the whole of the oration, the sermon, to get the job done. That's a helpful place to start. Also, in the immediate context, it doesn't seem to me that his purpose for his readers is in the main to unsettle them, to cause them to be insecure. If you look at with me at Hebrews chapter 6, verse 17, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purchase, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this sure and steady anchor of the soul, a hope that enters to the inner place behind the curtain. It seems to be writing and to impart a, a conf- settled confidence and certainty that we are Jesus's, the, the kind that actually compels and motivates us to complete the journey. But nevertheless, he's not writing here to discourage or to confirm that we're out of the game. And so we shouldn't take away from this sermon necessarily, unless you're one of those about whom he's speaking, and we can examine ourselves that we should walk around with that kind of uncertainty. That's not his purpose. So it's a sermon, an exhortation designed to encourage largely. Importantly, he's a preacher. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit, but through a human author who is not omniscient. And so you'll notice that the author in chapter 3... Verse 6, there we go, I was in the wrong chapter. Chapter 3, verse 6, I'll go up to chapter verse 5. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And guess what? We are his house. We're his house. We're his people. If, if indeed, we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. That's meant to be encouraging, but he's got to qualify it. Because if you leave off, then it is not true that now you are his house. Or look with me in verse 14. He has said a, a verse or two earlier that we should take care lest there be in any one of us an evil, unbelieving heart that leads us to fall away from the living God Verse 14, for we have come to share in Christ if 
Indeed, we hold our original confidence firm until the end. So this is a sermon. This involves exhortation with the purpose of encouragement. Written by a preacher who is not omniscient concerning his hearers. And he is qualifying his strong words of assurance and encouragement with this important if, because he doesn't know. And so, in a real way, what the author is doing in this passage is what he has done in the other warning passages, which matches what all the biblical authors do in addressing the problem of appearances. The problem of appearances. Lord Jesus, in Matthew 7, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And they are not his. Many look like it, think they are. And John, when he writes to his readers in 1 John 2, 19, a very important passage. He actually writes to encourage and comfort his own readers that they belong to Jesus. But some have gone out. Some aren't faithful. Some are still... Some are still showing up with a giant bottle of milk like this. The rest of the folks have a coffee in their hand like a grown adult. Maybe not in the auditorium. I don't even know the rule. But some are showing up to church with giant bottles and diapers. I know someone who's recently gone to a grown, grown adult, gone to... Walmart to pick up diapers for one of my toddlers and asks where the diapers are and is directed to the adult diaper section. Like, what is this? That's not what I came here for. So even when grown adults wear diapers, sorry, uh, uh, they don't want to be in them. And I can't talk my three-year-olds out of it, but it's coming around the corner because they like to be little their kids, but eventually they won't like it because they'll be growing up and they won't want to be called a baby and don't, but a big kid. And we'll do that because it's appropriate for them and for us. But in this church, as with other churches, some are still showing up in kid diapers. Some are still showing up with a giant bottle because that's just what they like. Some are still laying the foundation over and over again. Some aren't going anywhere in their Christian life and haven't since they were young. Or they have regressed to be as a baby. All of that should strike us as as problematic. But isn't this just what the apostles are doing in in other letters? What Jesus was doing... And what Matthew was doing in the construction of his gospel and quoting Jesus, quoting those who say, Lord, Lord, the church needed to know about the problem of appearances. And isn't that what John was doing in his letter to the first century church when he said, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would, not have, they would have continued with us. For continuing is the proof that they're with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. What was true became plain. Which is to say, what is this warning passage doing? Well, I don't think we should say that it's hypothetical. 
I don't think we can say that an actual blood-bought, spirit-regenerated Christian can fall away and lose salvation. None can be lost from Jesus' hand. But warnings can function as a test of reality. In other words, it's a real warning. And you and I should really hear it as such. And if we're showing up in diapers and with a baby bottle and want to be carried along in the Christian life and let every other Christian in the room handle the real stuff, let every other Christian do the evangelizing of my neighbors, let every other Christian read the Bible and know what it says so they can help that next couple with their issues, and not participate in a meaningful way in the speaking of the word of God one to another, because we should all be teachers as we mature as Christians, right? Not show up to church to listen, then we should be warned. Because, like riding a bike uphill, there's no stopping. There's either pressing on or there's falling back. So press on. Press on. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Give yourself to these things. So it addresses the problem of appearances, which is the same thing that other biblical authors are, are doing. So in the one sense, this passage really is nothing special, but it is doing what it's doing in a special way, right? Because we really don't have other passages that speak quite like this. We have Jesus saying, they'll say, Lord, Lord, but, but here it seems that he's making pains to say they're a Christian. It sounds like tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, been enlightened. And I think there's a helpful way to understand this imagery. Of all five warning passages in the book of Hebrews, every one of the five passages, let's bracket this one for the moment, the other four passages all directly engage the story of Israel, in particular the Exodus generation and the generation that failed in the wilderness. The generation, you remember from weeks ago, that failed to enter God's rest. The generation that was a parable in their life and in death before entering the land of the Christian pilgrimage and the importance of hanging on all the way until entrance into God's presence. So if that's the case in the other four warning passages, might it be the case here? Might it be that he's a good preacher? getting the job done in different ways. He's assuming you're hearing all of this together, the ifs, the ifs in the former passages, but now he's coming at you with this particular imagery, putting ourselves now back in the story with the wilderness generation and learning from the parable of that, of Israel's story and failure there. In the case of those who have once been enlightened as the sun went down and the fire represented the presence of God and the cloud led them by day, representing the light of his glory, the face of Moses brightened by exposure to the presence of God and holding a veil over his face when he came down lest the people and their sin come in contact with the light and die. Light, no small theme in that story. And the people having been enlightened by God's presence and ways with them. Who have tasted the heavenly gift. Oh, that one's easier. Heavenly gift? 
What New Testament author talks that way about salvation? It kind of sounds like it. The heavenly gift was that bread from heaven. Bread from heaven. Heavenly bread. Manna, it was called in that generation. And they tasted the goodness of the Lord and of his commitment to his people and his covenant faithfulness and of his patience with them. And who have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. Who witnessed the ways and the works of God and his parting the Red Sea and his passage of his people through the waters to safety. And that they still grumbled and longed for meat pots back in Egypt like that was easy or something. That is a parable of us and our sin turning against our Lord and of the danger of not entering rest. He's saying the same thing that he's said before, but he's doing it in the imagery of the Exodus and the wilderness generation instead. So that's a caution then to be overly invested in really particular readings and definitions here. And it would just be a good rule of interpretation not to build a doctrine off a definition of the word where the author doesn't define what he means. Tasted. Sometimes one will say, well, that's not digesting, so then that's just hearing the word. And Enlightened doesn't have to mean their eyes were opened, but they were near the light. And, or tasted is actually an experience, right? So it must mean they were... We don't, we don't need to get caught up in parsing every word and image. This is just what he has said before. The story of Israel in the wilderness failing to believe, dying before entry is a warning to us all of the possibility of hardening ourselves in unbelief and failing to enter God's rest. And so hear it as just that kind of a warning. A real warning and a test of reality. In our preschool hall down the way here, sometimes I get a free illustration within the minutes before church starts. Isn't that nice? I never plan on that. But I'm walking down the way after meeting with and praying with our worship team around 8, and I walk by advanced toddlers. And, no, 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 excuse me, I'll get corrected. Uh, Toddling twos, okay. Advanced walkers, beginning walkers. I think our division of the rooms is brilliant. Not at birthdays, at that age, but at how they're interacting with each other and what they can, what they can do. And so there's a natural physical progression. We expect they'll all just keep making their way through. But then, in the, excuse, that's nursery. So the preschool ministry then seeds in the imagery of agriculture and growth to capture not the physical growth of children, although that's in the background, but the, we pray the spiritual growth of our children in Christ. So we must grow. But, but what is this about impossible? That's a really strong word. So we can grant that one falls away, but is it impossible to restore any, someone, anyone, even this kind of a person? To repentance, do we really want to believe that? Let's work on what that that means. And I would just say, yes, it's impossible. In the case of someone who, who was, we could say, in the room, they really saw it, 
They've seen God save. They've heard the word of God. They've been around it. They thought they were. Then they fall away. Drift away so that they are away. To this point that they're crucifying once again the son of God to their own harm. To where they say, he's not my savior. Jesus isn't the Lord. He hasn't saved me. And would just as well see him crucified back on the ground, in the crowd, in the same spot. A person that has gone all the way with Jesus and then fell away. Impossible to restore them again to repentance, he says. Let me offer some analogies as to how this is to be understood. It's impossible, kind of like it's impossible to not practice and then not practice and then not practice thinking that the day before the recital you'll want to practice and that you will practice and that you'll be ready for the day. Impossible, like like drifting in a boat to the shores of Greenland and expecting to step off in Africa. Impossible, like spitting out your food. You're having to be fed. You're not reading for your own. You're not studying the Word of God on your own. You're not praying ever really on your own. You're being led in prayer on Sunday morning, and you're hearing the Word of God on Sunday morning, and that's God's means of grace, but you're not listening well. You're spitting the food out by the afternoon. It's as though it never went in. So that there is no growth. And expect to get a job one day. Like you're a grown adult. When you can't get out of bed. Famished. Similarly. In the same way that we understand. That. The father elects from the foundation of the world, but he saves by means of preaching and hearing and actual faith, not in some abstraction where you're on a list and so all the things that happen here are neither here nor there. And at our church, I'm really grateful that we embrace the doctrine of election without hesitation. It's not in our confession of faith. Don't let that throw you today. But in terms of our teaching and preaching back years... We've taken Ephesians chapter 1 and that word about Jesus and how all those who are drawn to, Father draws to him, come to him at face value. And yet we would still send Mark and Rachel to China and the farmers to Indonesia. Why? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing comes by the word of God. God uses means. So if that's looking at salvation in 2D right here, let's turn it sideways Because God keeps those he saves. So he's growing those he saves. And when you look at it in 2D, we see that there's preaching and there's faith, even as God elects from the foundation of the world. And as you turn it sideways, you see that there is preaching and there is the word of God and there is perseverance and there is obedience and there is staying with it. And just as you can't drift away 
and land on the shores of Greenland and expect to step off anywhere else. So too the author is saying to you and me, friends, those who drift away, who don't pay attention, who were in the room for all of this, it looked one way, but who fall away and who curse God and would crucify Christ, which is where we'd all be apart from being His. Every kind of person was in the crowd. Well, at that point, it's impossible to turn. Because that kind of heart doesn't soften. So don't gamble on the possibility that you'll get your Christian life together in this idea of growing later. Don't do it. And I won't treat you like that. I won't, and your elders won't treat our church like a bunch of babies. Like that's normal. We'll feed you with the word of God and call you to feed one another and speak to one another with the word of God and call our church's members up to all that Jesus calls us to. That's why when we have, uh, we receive members as we will, we'll pray for them and we'll read our covenant of fellowship together and we'll commit ourselves in a vow to this membership covenant that we have. Because it's a serious thing to align ourselves with the Lord Jesus and to band together as a local church. And so we won't treat you like babies. And you should get nervous for a church when you walk in and there's, hey, I'm, I'm, we have stained glass. There's, we're going to redo the auditorium one day and we might have some, some, some flourishes here and some, some nice touches there. There's aesthetics that go into a space. That's fine. But that's different than a light show and fog and, and all kinds of paraphernalia that, that kind of make you wonder if it isn't a bunch of babies in here. And I'm not thinking of any one church. I mean, you know what I mean. So in an age when you can kind of move around by car anywhere, isn't it to be expected that those who don't want to grow would end up somewhere together? And there's a temptation on the part of a church's leadership as things get hard, maybe as people leave for one reason or another, to cater down, to be more attractive in an unbiblical way. No, we won't treat you like babies. We will call you to adulthood and let us call one another to adulthood. It is impossible in that sense, in the same way that it's impossible to get good overnight at playing the piano for your recital. Well, it's impossible to wake up one day and and have a tender heart when you've been hardening your heart. Don't expect those who have shaken their fist at God to turn to Him. But of course, what's impossible for us and what's impossible phenomenologically as you look at it is not impossible for God. The distinction here would be between Peter and Judas. So Peter denies Christ three times. That's a lot. And he weeps. And Jesus Jesus tenderly reconciles with him. And Peter is forgiven. And Peter is employed in Jesus' service. That really happened. And that can really happen for you. If you're tender enough right now to say in your heart, God, I, I want to grow. Well, do good on that now. and Give yourself to the means of growth. Don't keep hardening yourself. If you have been in a pattern of secret sin looking at things, of imagining things, of 
of doing things for years and years, and you've gotten used to admitting it, and maybe you comfort yourself that Christians admit their sin, I'd have to say that this passage is calling you a big baby. Last week's sermon, which said you're, you're fine with milk, but you're not moving on and you're not growing, doesn't undermine the importance of childlike faith, which is dependence that comes. We really do mean in our song to call one another, come bitter and broken, guilty and hiding ones. There's no need to hide from Jesus. Come. But if you don't come, and if you keep hiding, well, this is you. But if you sit here tender enough to turn, then really, really turn. Like your life, and life depends upon it. And know that you are prayed for today. I think that's what it means by impossible. It is a warning not to get too far away before turning to Jesus, the anchor for your soul. Something impossible. Now, something simple. Wouldn't that be nice? So, almost like the author is thinking to himself, I've spoken in obscure ways. Let me return to something more familiar. It will draw on how Jesus has spoken and others. Verse 7, For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it's cultivated receives a blessing from God. Good fruit. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed. Not a good word. And its end is to be burned. Bad fruit. We go from an, an imagery of babies and human growth to now plant growth. And the background here may well be the prophet Isaiah, who gave us so many of those Christmas promises, who spoke of Israel as a vineyard, and of the word of God as rain, and who warned against no growth in the vineyard as a sign of judgment. We think of Jesus' words in Matthew 13, the parable of the soils, and that there are different soils. Sometimes the sun comes and scorches and destroys the growth. Sometimes the thorns grow up and choke it out, the cares of this world, the desires for other things. But some fruit grows and grows and grows and multiplies. Slowly, though. So it's almost as if here in verse 7 and 8, he said, Okay, there's an easy way to tell who we're talking about here. Uh, it takes time, though, so you've got to watch. So let, us, let none of us just be stuck in stumped growth. Let none of us not advance in the Christian life. Let none of us resign that we can't defeat that sin with God's help. That it'll just always be with us. We'll always be a yeller at home. We'll always be rude to our kids. We'll always give in to that fantasy and lust. No, it doesn't have to be that way. Be encouraged. And it must not be that way if you want to be assured. There's something simple, refreshing here at the end. So what is time telling you about yourself? What is time telling you? 
Be encouraged if it's telling you, and you can ask others for help in this, that you belong to God. Spouses, you should encourage your spouse even when things are hard, even when they're sinning and feel ashamed of it. That you see that God has worked in them over time. You owe that to your spouse. Christian, if your spouse is a professing Christian, you're the closest one. You're going to feel their greatest sins. You're going to be hurt the most by them. And you're the one that can see them grow the most over time. So let us not deny God the glory that he deserves and the praise he deserves. And our spouse is the credit, excuse me, not the credit's not the right word, the encouragement that they, that they need by helping them see beyond their current moment of failure, even when you're on the other end of it. What is time telling you? Or is it telling you that, that you're worthless and near to being cursed Strong words right from the Bible, but there really are two kinds of people in the end when we die. There are those who, who belong to Jesus, and you, you may not have much time to bear much fruit. You may not actually be able to tell exactly. We have the word concerning that thief on the cross because we have it from God in the Bible. Jesus' words even to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. Not a lot of time, but he confessed Christ, and so he is with him No, the ground of our justification and salvation is the work of Jesus. And the proof of it is in how we respond right now to warnings just like this. Don't drift away. Pay attention, friends. Take care now. This is urgent. And take care of one another. For perseverance is a community project. Something impossible, something simple, and now something something better. Verses 9 through 12. We've moved from an impossibility to an illustration, now to an intention, a beautiful intention. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, feel sure of better things we do. Since things that belong to salvation, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work of love that you've shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. I read this and I wonder, did we clip clip in material? Did we miss some material? Uh, Is he fickle? Is he prone to overstatement? And so he's kind of correcting himself here. No, I think he's a good pastor. He understands that he writes to a church about whom he has confidence, and yet it's a mixed bag. Not that the church itself, the new covenant community, is constituted of unbelievers as Israel would have been, but that in the presence of the preaching of the word of God, and even in, among the, the ranks of a local church, there are those who are drifting, who are still babies. And he, he doesn't want the, the many to be confused by his words to The few, and a case for this would be, in verse 4 he says, it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened. In verse 9, by way of contrast, though we speak in this way about those, yet in your case, beloved, he's not schizophrenic. He's just doing good pastoring. He has a congregation to write to, and yet there are individuals in that congregation who need a certain kind of medicine. And that medicine isn't for everyone in the same way. They need to listen in to this word to those people. And so in a given Sunday morning, we have to hear wisely, as I have to preach wisely, 
to our own church. He's just doing good pastoring. And beloved, I must say to you in that endearing, brotherly word, beloved, that I do feel sure of better things for you, things that belong to salvation. And why can I say that? Well, on the same basis that our writer does, that God is not unjust, and so he'll punish sin one day. But the work of our high priest who shed his blood for you to take your guilt away, then to give you the Holy Spirit, his work is at work in you right before me. In the form of your love one for another. For he will not overlook your work and the love you have shown for his name. And is that not what Jesus even said is the way that the world will know we belong to him? And isn't that not a way that we know that we belong to him? The way we run to each other when we need help. When we're struggling as sinners and as we're struggling as sufferers, we are there for each other as family. And so we know we belong to God. We would not do it otherwise. Now let me conclude this two-part warning by answering a really important question. Really practically, down on the ground, in the course of our week, how can we how can we be sure that we belong to this group, this second group? What can we do? Well, in the first place, as Matt exhorted us, respond to Jesus with faith and repentance. Remember these basic principles on which we build the Christian life? Repentance and faith and the washings, baptism and and on? Well, make sure that you're in the faith. But then, verse 14 of chapter 5, Solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment, trained by constant practice. So the first thing I would say to you, in terms of what to do to grow in your assurance, constant effort. Here he says, constant practice, continual practice in the things of God. Verse 11 of chapter 6, we desire that each one of you, now he's talking to each one of you, should show the same earnestness, earnestness to have full assurance and hope to the end, that you may not be sluggish. He talked about slowness in the former chapter, but imitators of those who through faith and patience, patience, constant effort, let us be a church where every one of us is giving ourselves to maturity with constant effort. And as you give yourself to this, you will see the fruit of that constant effort. Just yesterday I was talking to my son. I picked him up at a friend's house. And they had run up a hill a month ago. And Carson had to stop halfway to catch his breath. First thing he said when he got in the car was, Hey, Dad, I ran up the whole hill and I didn't have to stop to catch my breath. Well, how did that happen? Well, he's been running through the week. Now it's required. It's part of PE for him. But he's seeing growth as it's meant to be. It would be weird if there was no growth. Friend, give yourself to constant effort at growth as a Christian. Don't let up. And your assurance of hope 
will grow. It will. I assure you of that. You will grow if you give yourself to constant practice. Reading the scriptures. Praying to God. I give publishers of Bibles a hard time. I get the economics of it. We want cheap Bibles, right? But sure, some of them feel cheap. But then some of them aren't cheap and they just wear out over time. And we have to have them rebound. Let's embrace tattered Bibles. Better to have a Bible that's been roughed up from good use and marked up from thoughts that I had as I was reading than to have nice, pretty Bibles that aren't used. How about that place where you pray at home? How about your seat when our church gathers once a month, most months, to pray together? Have a seat. Be about prayer. And merging with that thought now to the second, constant effort and each other. You need each other. Be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Which is why we need to gather together to read the word of God and hear each other speak it. Which is why we need to be together to pray and to hear each other praying. As we raise our kids and as we seek to grow ourselves, we must hear others give themselves to constant practice. And as we each give ourselves to constant practice in the things of God, so the water level rises. And so we all grow together. Let us not be a church of big babies. Friends, I warn you, and everything's at stake, certainly your assurance, grow up. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for this hard word because we need it. We need a kick sometimes. But we thank you that this hard word is bound together with another word to us, a comforting word. And so we pray to the extent that we are manifesting a love for your people and have given ourselves to these things to practice them and to the extent that you have grown us that we would see it and that we would, that we would be assured and full of hope and that as our hope grows with our Christian growth, that others would grow as they follow behind. Father, we need your help for this. We confess that. We have all have sins on our mind. I pray that none here would feel unduly burdened when they should feel welcomed and helped. But where it's necessary, where one is in fact among those who, of whom our author has spoken, I pray that they would feel unsettled and so give themselves to Jesus wholly and give themselves with constant practice and effort to the very things you use to grow us. And we thank you for those things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.